Garrett, how many years did you work at Diamond Tool? I was there uh, from spring of 1972, which was uh, 50 years ago now, uh, until uh, just a month before they closed um, permanently. So it was until October 94, 1994. So that was 22 some years. Good. Thank you. Thank you. That was hurting my brain for a second. Oh, well, you didn't tell me I'm going to have to do math here. Yeah, but you did. It was splendid. Okay. So you're there for 22 years. Yeah. Well, okay. So did you know? How many years did I work there? About half of them, people will tell you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Did you know that if it wasn't for the mighty white pine, you might not have had a job? What? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. I'm gonna make the connections. But oh, you 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 got a ways to go here. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna make it I'm gonna make this happen. Let's but first, go. okay, wait, first you're gonna You do know tools are made out of steel, right? Uh, yeah. Really? All right. I'm, All not, right. I'm go ahead. a very handy person. But okay, Tell anyway. Me, you know, the mighty oak or whatever. Yeah, white pine. <laughs> well, like I said, the white pine. Yeah, yes. listen. First, yes. you are getting bridged with Gary and Kelly. I am Kelly Halston Erickson, and... I am Jerry Halston. You are my dad. I am your daughter. And that's this it. is the podcast that's light on history and heavy on nostalgia. This time, we're going to be a little heavier on history because talking about a diamond tool... It's going to take more than one episode, folks. More than one episode. Oh, it is. I, I only go back 50 years, and the company goes back a long ways from that. Yep, that is a few more years than that. Yes. Okay, so let's get back to the trees. Um, white pines, again, to be exact, not the mighty oak. Um, so, of course, we're talking about logging which was quite the thing back in the day, um, the, the late 1800s to be specific, oh, sure. in northern sure. Minnesota, and logging of the mighty white pine. It turns out that the white pine was an ideal tree for logging because it's a lighter wood, easier to saw, and it floated easier, of course, down the rivers. The first, um, first sawmill was down near the cities, but they slowly started moving their way north. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, but what's that got to do with uh, horseshoes and hand tools? All right, all right, all right. Anyway, I think you probably know that lumberjacks would cut down the trees. And you'd need some horses to pull the trees over to the river so they could float them down to the river. And guess what? It was bumpy and crappy, and when it was winter, it was also icy. Well, that's true. Even to this day, a lot of logging is done in the winter uh, when the ground is hard enough to withstand, now it's heavy trucks, but probably just to uh, withstand the weight of the heavy sleighs that were uh, hauled out of the woods. If you look at pictures uh, from back in that day, the size of the trees that they brought out, these, these were an eight-foot diameter tree was common. These sleighs were just huge. Yeah. But I imagine you needed needed a lot of horses uh, to pull a sleigh like that. Yep, there'd be horses and there'd be oxen as well. And um, lots of times um, the lumberjacks apparently would say that the their, their accommodations um, were actually worse than the, <laughs> than the horses and the oxen. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I suppose uh, the horses would have been slipping all over the place and spilling logs. Gare. I don't know if they're spilling them, but... Uh, Gare. No. Gare. Could, yep. No. Nope. What? They, uh... I know, but, okay, at that time, 
uh, horses had horseshoes, and they had, and I got your connection now, in the horseshoes they had calks, okay? Wait, calk. Like, I, I wait, go, huh? like the toothpaste stuff? That toothpaste like that goes around the cracks no, in no, the shower? Calk? No, 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 no. Uh, not like that. Calk, C-A-L-K, calk. Oh, okay. Okay. Very similar uh, to cleats on baseball shoes. Sure. Same deal for a horseshoe. Spiky. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They're they're cleats for horseshoes, and uh, and I, I know exactly where you're going. Um, it seems that um, Otto Swanstrom, founder of the company, uh, came up with and started manufacturing a caulk that was easy to remove from the shoe. The caulk wasn't forged into the shoe. It was it was an add-on. And there could be about four uh, of these caulks sticking out of the shoe. And traditionally, they had threads on them. They screwed in. Well, they also unscrewed and fell off. Uh, they wore in such a manner that uh, anything with threads on it and you've started to do some pounding on it like a horse's hoof would do, that makes something incredibly difficult to unscrew again if you're going to change them. And that was the idea is that they were removable, renewable, and you could always keep them on your horse's uh, shoe so that they had decent traction in the snow. And the caulk that uh, Otto manufactured uh, was tapered. It was round, it was tapered, and you simply tapped it into the shoe. And the same action of the horse pounding on the ground just made that caulk fit in even better. And when it was time to remove it, a simple wedge-shaped hammer would tap in and, and the caulk would pop out. And you could throw in another one. And if the horse didn't need the caulks on the shoes, you didn't even have to put them in. The horse could walk a little bit uh, without the caulks. So it was a great idea. So in and uh, Swanstrom, he actually worked up in the logging camps as a blacksmith for a while, didn't he? Because because he because saw he saw this sort of happening. I I don't know about that specifically okay. in logging, but I know that uh, uh, horses had the same problem in town. And here in Duluth, you know, you, you don't go too many places without going up and down the hill. And that was a problem for horses in town as well. So there was definitely a real need for these things. Well, it's sort of interesting to think about the weather and how the weather could play into it as well, I suppose, with the, depending on what kind of winter you're having, if it gets really cold, that does that does things to metal. And I imagine that there would be some some kind of trouble trying to get that all figured out. It's kind of interesting to think about that old technology. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It um, was just, just a thing whose time was had come. Yeah, so, okay. So anyway, Otto Swanstrom's yeah. in Duluth. And so it's interesting. I was doing the research for this, and the website, which will be linked to the show notes for Swanstrom Tools USA, says that two brothers, Andrew and Frank Swanstrom, had a blacksmith shop and wagon works here in Duluth, Duluth in the late 1800s. Oh. And so, do, I mean, would are these brothers Otto's brothers, would you think? I don't know. I don't know. Um, if you couldn't find out, I do know uh, that the original signers of the incorporation, 
Uh, one of the original signers was Frank Swanstrom. Okay. I have never heard the name Andrew uh, mentioned. Now, these could have been, I suppose it could have been Otto's father as well, hmm. or it could have been Otto's brother. I, I don't know. I, I just, I, I have never been told that part of the story. Well, I tried to find out. I mean, I didn't try really hard, but I did try a little harder than usual and no dice. So maybe somebody out there will know what the deal is and will set us straight. Um, okay, so anyway, Otto or the brothers or some combination thereof forms Diamond Kalk in 1908, which quickly becomes Diamond Kalk and Horseshoe Company. But there was trouble. Well, before you go too far, oh, oh. I know because I have copies of the original incorporation papers. You do? And I have uh, read them recently. And uh, the place was actually incorporated August 18th, 1908. The first director's meeting was 10 days later. Uh, the incorporation was signed by Frank Swanstrom, Elban Devon, Ernest Peterson, G.W. Ross, and Leonard Peterson. I have no idea who these guys are. And I think they set it up with like $100,000. And it was going to be uh, 100 shares valued at 100 bucks a piece. And the corporation's life was to be 30 years. Huh. So it was going to just die on its own in 30 years. Well, well, <laughs> that, well that didn't happen. That didn't happen. Where's Otto in all no. of this? There's too many Swanstrom I, names floating I, around here. I don't know. Hmm. And it could be that, you know... Maybe Otto had all kinds of great ideas, but he just didn't have the working capital to do it. So he got some people to back him, and one of them is Frank Swanstrom. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So we got Frank here. All right. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, 1908, it's formed, confirmed, but then there's trouble. Um, there's trouble. Well, they had that war, you know. Oh, yes. Um, there was that war, uh, but of course... There was, before the war, the trouble of, you know, the old horseless carriage, um, cars. So it kind of, the cars came around and it kind of made horseshoes less and less of a sure bet business-wise. And so the Swanstroms, they were no fools. They diversified their stock and they supplied picks and shovels, barbed wire cutters, all that during World War One. Yeah, so, yes um, they did. So kind of interesting military equipment, huh? Yeah. Shovels. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's still a lot of those things floating around. That little, uh, it, it's, uh, it was like uh, a camping shovel. If you've ever seen those little foldable shovels that uh, you flip it one way and it's a, it's a little shovel. You flip it the other way and it's a hoe, a pickaxe, whatever you want it to be. Whoa, like the Swiss Army knives of shovels. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> well, you know, it was World War One, so there was that that uh, trench warfare. So many trenches. So I would imagine that picks and shovels and barbed wire and all that stuff, barbed wire cutters, very important. Well, yeah, yeah, and that. Uh, I don't know if it was uh, World War One that helped all that much. But it did uh, allow them to buy machinery uh, to make things other than horseshoes. And um, I'll get ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, they did likewise in World War II. Uh, they purchased machinery for the war production. And uh, there was that same thing, those, those grub hoes, those pickaxes, those tank wrenches. Uh, somebody told me that they, they stamped out 
it was either it was spoons i think it was for mess kits on one of the restrikers and the deal was the government will buy the machinery and whatever costs it takes for you to set it up okay it'll be covered uh, as you make the stuff and when the war was over you could buy the machinery from the government for about a dime on a dollar oh well, okay, but anyway, I'm I'm going ahead of myself. Okay, back, yes. it, up, back it up, back it up. Okay, so we are after yes. World War One, and yeah. there's more trouble. Guess what? Guess what? Guess well, what the trouble is? Well, you know the yeah the automobile came around, and granted, they started making wrenches and pliers, and yeah, it looks like a monkey wrench, but it's called an auto wrench, and um, actually Ford put that style wrench. 90 degree head handle with a 90 degree head, 90 degree jaws to it. Uh, and that was uh, called a Ford wrench because it came with every new Ford. You got one of those wrenches. So Otto started making auto wrenches. <laughs> well, and of course it all, geez. It's, okay, so it's also the Great Depression and these wrenches. Oh, yeah, well. They were the second, Diamond was the second company in america to start manufacturing these adjustable wrenches which was kind of a big deal and actually allowed sort of floating them through the depression but i have two questions for you on this number one why is an adjustable wrench such a big deal why is it such a big deal yeah what do you mean well who cares like who cares if it's a what i don't understand why that would be a big deal what what one tool does many jobs Uh Okay. Oh, so so before you had to have a bunch of different with the different you, you jaws would have different open and openings, oh. and it it can do things it's not supposed to. It's not a hammer, although it's been used as one. Oh. But you can you know use it as kind of like a miniature vice. You can grab onto a piece of sheet metal and bend it a little bit. The adjustable wrench was an awesome tool to have. Hmm. It was far smaller than the uh, auto wrench and just lended itself much better to the nuts and bolts that uh, were used to put everything together. Gosh, I guess I'm not, obviously, not a tool person. Um, (laughs) mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so, okay, my second question is this. They were the second company to do these adjustable wrenches. Why weren't they the first, though? I don't know. Probably too busy making and selling horseshoe calks. I guess too many pay calls. Pay attention to that stuff. Yeah. Maybe maybe they thought that car thing is just a passing fad. Ha 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 ha! Foolish mortals. Surely they'll never take the place of a horse. All right. So as you as you said, Diamond got their did their part in uh, World War Two, and they eventually got the name you knew it by and worked under the Diamond Tool and Horseshoe Company in 1958. Yes. Thus completing the circle from the mighty white pine to your job to my job yeah mm-hmm. yeah pretty good huh 58 yes and they I, I haven't seen any of the official paperwork on that and people kind of speculate as to when it really took place but essentially 1958 and all of a sudden all of their tools uh uh said no longer said Diamond Kulk Horseshoe Company. It was Diamond Tool and Horseshoe Company because they were into tools. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and the horseshoe thing. It just, uh, 1958, the Kulks, all that. The, yeah, they, I don't know when they stopped making Kulks, but they never, in my time, stopped making horseshoes. There was an incredible amount of actual horseshoes for actual horses, as well as pitching shoes. And there was even right. 
three different varieties of those, uh, actually four. Uh, one of them was called the Diamond Junior. And somewhere in my collection of stuff, I do have uh, a set of Diamond Junior shoes. And they are ma steel shoes made for littler kids. But they're, they're real horseshoes. And uh, yeah, I got it from uh, my father-in-law. But uh, I and I'm not sure where it is. But uh, I did have one at one time. But uh, even you know they would make uh, probably uh, twenty to twenty-five thousand horseshoes every day. Wow! Every day. Wow! Five days a week. Wow! That's a crazy amount of horseshoes when you figure there's not many horses anymore. You know, surely there's no need for horseshoes. Yeah, there was. Wow, that's amazing. And the pitching, I know the pitching yeah. shoes, like that was a really popular, very popular thing. And I think I may be speaking out of school here, so somebody might be correcting me on this, but I feel like there was some sort of innovation that came, and I don't know if it came out of Diamond Tool or not, with the, um, with the pitching shoes where they had like, the horseshoes had like a little... Um, uh, like a little hook kind of a thing on the end so you're able to do a ringer oh yeah, you know what I'm talking yeah. about like that that was a part of the pitching shoe um, which is sort of interesting and I don't know if that was a, where that innovation necessarily came from the, but the, the legacy of shoes yeah. yeah and I don't remember we had super ringer double ringers and tournament shoes mm. and I was never terribly involved with the horseshoe end of that that wasn't a whole other end of the building oh my I had a job to do on yeah. my side you know Jeez. Uh, so I'm not sure what the difference was in them uh, they were different colors I know, <laughs> I know that but it went beyond that right 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 well okay I got us up to modern times. Pretty good, huh? From uh, trees, yes, yes, from pine trees. From pine there. trees, hanging out up up in the northern wilds, minding their business. I'll I'll give you that. To uh, Diamond that. Tool in the mid mid fifties, uh, becoming what you are going to be working at. So, um, here's the thing, though: we're not going to talk about your working life quite yet. We're going to save it for another episode because oh, you know what? Oh, there's so much to talk about Oh, there's about so much to that, discuss, yes. That whole operation. Yeah, and we've got an Ask a Duluthian question to answer. Alright, so it's going to have to wait. Are you, ready? Are you ready for this? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Dear Gare and Kelly, I was in town last weekend and we're recording this in mid-May. I was in town last weekend and I saw the most bizarre thing. People in some sort of parade dressed as silver fish Mm -hmm. I asked, and someone said it had something to do with smelt. My question is this. What? What? Yeah, so... Oh, I used to drink like that, too, but I, I just don't anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People dressed as silver. Yeah, have you seen this? No. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I don't get out like I should, Yes. Apparently. Okay, so this... Oh, my gosh. What, what, the, what this is referring to is the Magic Smelt Parade. And uh, mm -hmm. where, where where do we see this parade? This parade, you know, I'm, I got to tell you, I don't know a ton about it. It starts, I believe, downtown on East Superior Street, and they work their way down to the lake. And it is like, because, of course, there's a smelting season that happens oh, well, yeah. on the lake. Um, and if you have not experienced, a, uh, dear listeners, if you have not experienced eating a smelt, um, we've eaten smelt oh, what, sure. is, what what is that you talk about what what is how do you eat a smelt how do you eat a smelt how do you eat a smelt with your fingers yeah you just you catch a smelt you 
you use a scissor, you cut its head off, you go down and uh, cut its belly, and then you put your finger in there and scrape out the entrails, and there you got something to fry up right there. Yeah, you batter that thing up. Just that easy. Fry it, eat it. It's delicious. It's delicious, my friends. Everybody has uh, a, a special, a very special beer batter for smelt. And theirs is possibly the best in the world, whatever it is, whoever's done it. I have the best ever, you see. Yeah, it's one of those things. And it's one of those just limited, yeah. limited time only offers. And they're, the smelt are probably, you know, they're about as big as a finger, you know, depending on how big your hand is. So they're just yeah. like a, little, a little bit plumper than a fish stick, I would say, but uh, yeah. uh, delicious. They're very fishy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No yeah. question of it's being a fish. Mm-hmm, that's true, and uh, but they're they're good, and they, and so there's been this magic smelt parade where people dress up and dance, and it's just sort of like a fun and fr- frivolous sort of well, uh, thing that that happens around. They'll the all have to be season. there next year. There no you go, good time. right down front. So that's your answer, and that's Holy how we roll. Um, I know in Austin, Texan, Texas, they say keep Austin weird, but I feel like we could steal that. <laughs> Keep we, Duluth weird. Well, we're, we're off to a great start. I think okay. uh, next time uh, we should probably start talking about um, when I started working there. And that was the 4th of April, 1972. Oh, my gosh. We're heading it to was, the early 70s. Yeah, yeah. It was a Tuesday. Uh, the Monday after Easter, I went and I got interviewed for the job uh, by Jack Swanstrom. Heck of a guy. I got lots of stories about him. And uh, I was in, I had to go get a pair of uh, safety shoes and uh, start the next afternoon at 3.30. All right. Just like that. Uh, We can discuss that diamond tool at that point had been uh, very well established. It was making an awful lot of different hand tools between wrenches, groove joint, slip joint pliers, solid joint pliers. That's any, any plier that has a rivet in it, wire cutters, tin snips. There were probably around uh, six to 700 people working there, uh, three shifts a day at the time. It was a going concern in West Duluth that, uh, you know, it, it was the rock. It, it, you started working at Diamond Tool, uh, it would be a career. You could be there until you retire. I was 20 years old at the time, so, you know, I was all set, ready to go. All right. Yeah, but anyway, we want to try to keep these less than a half an hour, and that's, once I get going on that other stuff and the stories of uh, first days on the job and such, uh, it's going to take a lot more than the time we have left. All right. So, so let's, plus the uh, bridge is a, coming down. Yeah, so, it looks like uh, yeah. the boat's almost through. So we'll uh, try again. And I do have to say that the Getting Bridge podcast is researched and written by Kelly Halston Erickson. It's remembered and recorded by Jerry Halston at The Compound here on Park Point. And it's produced by Jerry Halston and Kelly Halston Erickson. So we really have no one to blame but ourselves for this. Sources are compiled at rss.com slash podcasts slash getting bridged. And you can ask questions and comment on our episodes on Instagram at getting bridged, joining our Facebook group, or by searching uh, for the Getting Bridged podcast and emailing us at gettingbridged at gmail.com. Uh, special thanks to both Mary and Dan, uh, you know who you are, and to the many people in our lives for whom reminiscing is a varsity sport. Thanks. <laughs>